0: All and Welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. Uh, Every year around this time, a few things happen. Uh, One, we usually have a podcast about going back to school, right? Two, I have to confront the fact that it's back to school time and it doesn't pertain to me because let me tell you, the other day I was on the Nike website trying to buy some sneakers and I saw they had, you know, back to school specials. And I'm so traumatized. Uh, from from my childhood, as soon as I saw back to school sales, I just meant that was it. Fun was over, freedom was over. I was just returning to the factory. Uh, <laughs> I was breaking rocks on the side of the road, which was what that, that's what they did at my high school. Um, but now I can just look at it objectively as a citizen, as a human being. Um, I'm not even a parent, so I don't have to worry about my own children going to school. So this gives me a very objective position uh, to examine this. Also, of course, this is no ordinary back to school. Uh, this is somehow the second back to school of the COVID age a lot of the same questions are around in fact it feels a lot like a repeat of the conversation that we had last year when it was time to go back to school uh luckily for you listeners i won't be the only one talking about this because i don't have the inside scoop i'm just a kid who was traumatized by school now i'm a grown-up and i still can't talk about school without throwing something in there about uh how awful it was not totally true i'm being hyperbolic i'm joined today uh by a good friend of the show uh the host of Marlon's Corner. Marlon, who does work in education, who is an educator, who does have insight. Uh, and we're going to have a conversation. I want to start by welcoming you, Marlon. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure.
1: Oh, dude, same. Uh, it's been a while since I've been on Martian Call. And it's good to be back. This is the
0: first time you've been here, just you. This so is the first time you've been so here where it's just Marlon. Yes. So we've had Marlon, as our listeners know, is a member of Geek Force. So we've had Marlon on as a member of Geek Force. Uh, and then, you know, Geek Force folks hosted Margin Call episode. But you guys are like a package deal. Like, I kind of, it's, it's a little bit like, um, you know, it's like you don't ever see, like, if you see the three studios, like, boom, they're all there together and they're doing their thing together. You don't think, oh, you know, Curly never got a spinoff show. You know what I mean? But in this instance, (laughs) in this instance, Marlon actually does have a spinoff show. Uh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, listen to it. It's on the uh, Quest on Media website. It's called Marlon's Corner. Um, And it's a light and tight recap of pop culture and also kind of what's going on in the world. In a lot of ways, it's similar to the format of this show, except that it's just like one funny dude riffing, which I like that format, Marlon. (laughs) One funny dude riffing. (laughs) That'll get you pretty far. Hey, it fits. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I also like your ability to transition. See, I always, I, you know, Ming, our producer calls these tangents. You know, I'll start talking about a movie and then before you know it, I'm talking about communism, you know, and then Ming will say tangent and then I have to come back. But you've actually built it into the show where this show started off as a review of like a Netflix horror show. And then before you knew it, you were dropping all kinds of helpful information about back to school. I, I, I love this episode personally.
1: Hey, man. Thank you. Yeah. I have to say it's, uh, uh, it's really easy to do these transitions when it's just me. Uh, it's very hard to do a transition with someone else because then I'm like, I gotta, I gotta have a reaction. I gotta riff. I gotta go back and forth. And then of course, uh, unlike with you, where we're, where even going will say the tangent she'll ring a bell for me and to remind me you're off topic. I'm like, great, got you get back on topic. So when it's just me, just solo, I'm like, cool. I, I have a, a I have a, a script to go off of, I'm gonna follow it. Uh, but yeah, typically when it's Geek Force, uh, I, I I am definitely a negative force of that show that Emic has to approach uh, I'll, I'll Rain in. I'll tell you,
0: I've been a guest on Geek Force, as you know, and you got a fight for mic time in that room, Oof, you, you got to really, you, got to. you, first of all, you have to have a good point. You got to have something that you're really contributing and you got to just wait until exact, it's kind of like double dutch. You have to wait until the exact right yes. moment to just like swoop in. Uh, Cause you guys are all chatty. You all have good points uh, and you have a very good flirt. Maybe it was difficult for me. Cause I was like, you know, what a, a fourth four wheels are good but in this instance i was a bad fourth wheel kind of like where you know what i mean it's hard to well you know you guys have your own chemistry you don't have guests very often margin call is all about guests you know
1: i think it's it's one of those things where uh you have a group of people who are just so used to talking around each other like they kind of know the ins and outs when you bring a person it's like oh like i don't properly know the pathway to enter here but like from the outside looking it's like yeah like there is definitely a whole uh pathway to take to jump in and hop back out, and it's difficult to, like, fight the current to get in there. Uh, but you held your own. You dropped some really good statements, and they, of course, helped us, you know, get on more tangents that Aiming had to uh, remind us to stay off of. Yeah. So I appreciate that always. Well, well,
0: I'll just say, I don't know if you remember my brother's appearance. Um, I remember that very knowledgeable guy he really knows all his stuff up and down right much better than i do and then i said you know because i have kind of a checkerboard understanding of that realm you know there's like Mm -hmm. "Ah, i don't really know that much about as you know dragons for instance the lord of the rings is out for me my brother knows everything across the board and i told him i was like i really want to get back on geek force but i feel like you know my knowledge isn't up to par and these guys you know he's like that's good if you're a guest on geek force then you can be the everyman. Right, you can be the person True. that like you come in and be like, "Oh, please explain to me like have there was there a prequel to this, uh, you know?" Mm. Uh, and, and and you guys would be like, "Oh, of course there was a pre, you know." So I'm just advancing every time I you know hang out with one of you guys. I gotta say like,
1: ah, just consider it,
0: you know, just just consider it. That's good. Uh, you know, it yes. keeps
1: us from being an echo chamber, which is helpful.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> Although it's a, it's a pretty entertaining echo chamber. I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yes, right. as you know, big fan of Geek Force, big fan of Marlins Corner. Love the format. This episode big was great. Margin uh, And I'm glad that we get to kind of like bring you over. This is, this mm-hmm. is the point of having a network. You start to get people uh, on your own show. This is a conversation we need to have. You made a Absolutely. lot of good points. Uh I have several specific questions, but I want to start off just for our listeners' sake. Talk a little bit about your role as an educator. Where, where do you work? Uh, what kind of students do you work with? What age? And, and what's your role?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So my exposure into education started uh, in college. Uh, I volunteered to be a part of this experience in Jamaica, where I got a chance to teach in a kindergarten classroom. Uh, And it was basically just like a very kindergarten level class around like letters, phonemic awareness, had a great time around it. So when I came back to the Bay, uh, I immediately wanted to pursue education. I worked for um, AmeriCorps and I volunteered in a Phoenix Awareness program in West Oakland uh, at a school that was called Vincent Academy that is now closed down. But I uh, spent my years there, you know, honing my craft in the classroom, my teacher voice, lesson planning, uh, the whole nine with um, the K through three class that I rotated with. So I saw them from kindergarten to third grade. Uh, and Wait, can the I interrupt
0: time. you to ask about teacher voice? I don't yes. know what teacher voice is. Tell me about teacher voice real quick. It's yeah. a little bit off topic. You know, e is going to ring the bell, but tell me <laughs> about teacher voice.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like teacher voice, um, for a lot of first-year teachers, especially coming into education, uh, there is this tendency to speak at a tone of voice that only hits the first two rows of a classroom you're teaching in. Uh, teacher voice, you want to hit that back row so that everyone can hear you. And that what that basically means is that you are facing out. Um, if you are an actor, it'd be like you and you're on stage. Your every movement you're doing, your body has to be facing your audience and speaking at them. But also at the same time, having your your hand or your materials on an easily accessible board. So teacher voice is basically just like you're projecting in a way that isn't shouting, but still gets across to that student in the back row that can hear what you're saying. It and does sound along.
0: very theatrical. It does sound very theatrical. I assumed oh, it yeah. was going to have something to do with um, like authority. You know, you have to use like mm-hmm. a specific kind of voice to present yourself. I have a lot of educators in my family, and one of them is uh, one of my favorite aunts. <laughs> Uh, who now I think is a kindergarten teacher, but she's done all the elementary school ages. And she still says like, every time I'm up there, I'm like, these kids know I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) She's like, I've been doing this. She's like, you know, she's talking about six or seven (laughs) year olds. You know, (laughs) she's been doing it for 30 or 40 years. And she still feels like, I don't know. Before they had an imposter syndrome, she was telling me, she's like, you know, my handwriting is very messy. I I don't know that I should be teaching kids how to
1: write. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) no. My handwriting is absolutely abysmal. But what I do about (laughs) education is that uh, everything is deliberate. Like, I know my handwriting is sloppy. So, like, all my lesson plans, if I'm using the board, uh, you know, it's deliberate what I'm writing. Uh, So, if I'm writing something that, like, I need them to read, then that means I'm putting in the time and effort to take it slow and make it a point to write it across that way. Or it, it also includes that, you know, maybe I'm using technology. Maybe I'm using a printout or a Scantron, something to project. I feel like with education, it definitely was not time and place where without the proper technology, if you were a sloppy handwriter, that's kind of all you have to deal with. But, you know, from, you know, the... The little old school plastic projector sheets to now the computer projector. There's just so many ways that you can meet your students where they happen to reside the in projector sheets. I remember the little, them well, right? Those little <laughs> old school gray ones, the little yep. black and the little, uh, glass one on screen. Just, yep. Come to your multiplication tables on here and you got to like mm-hmm. lick your finger and scrub them off. Good
0: times. Oh well, usually I would go up there and lay my hand like a middle finger on it, so that it would project the middle <laughs> finger, <laughs> just to give you a sense of what kind of student I was. You know, if oh, this, this, this teacher stepped out for a second, I'd be like, bah, and then you'd have a giant middle finger on the on the on the board, uh, yeah. just to give you. But oh. Uh, Finish your narrative for me. Sorry, I cut you off to of about teacher voice, but K you're doing K through three uh in, oh, in West Oakland, right? That's where we yeah. left off.
1: Okay. West Oakland, K through three teaching that phonemic worms doing phonemic worms was my main focus. So basically teaching kids how to read, how to sound out sounds, vowels specifically, uh, and just really trying to give them the foundational steps to literacy is the overall goal. Um, and then from there, uh, I got reached out to from my old principal, a high school at work that I went to in Richmond. And so, um, at that point, I was offered an administrative role of enrichment uh and I've been there for about four years now um and my role is, is pretty much disciplinary um so if a student gets sent to the office, I meet them, I talk to them, I try to construct a restorative plan for them nice. so they can enter back to the classroom for successful, and on top of that, uh at the end of the year, I plan graduation so I get to see off my graduates uh, as they go on to take on the world in college or whatever they see uh, fit for themselves but that is uh, my educational experience
0: nice. I would have been very happy to have you as a Dean uh in my school when I was a kid I mean I probably still would have thought you know it's like kind of an authority game as we were discussing before the show yeah. but you know they weren't really, they were really talking about there wasn't a lot of talk about restorative justice I want to say when I was in high school that's kind of a it feels like a very new concept in terms of approaching. yeah I think um
1: with uh with this role and with many roles in education that are administrative, there definitely was a lot of discussion around roles that, um, while they aren't inherently adversarial, are just by virtue of circumstance adversarial. Um, We know that for a lot of students, middle school tends to be where they lose the most trust in adults. Um, Elementary school for multiple kids tends to be the higher point of their educational journey. Um, We know that like that's where students start learning and start really uh, attributing, I want to be in school because of like education. And then when you get to middle school, you start observing that these students are having a rougher time. They're having um, a lot of butting head moments with authority figures. So in yeah. they transition to high school, if you automatically have that authoritative role, you're starting at a disadvantage. And so my training specifically with this role has been around restorative justice work, uh, around trying to establish those connections out the gate, and just pretty much remind them that any and all expectation rules are grounded not just in safety, but in community building. So you can at least attribute like, hey, if you're causing an issue, the issue is with the rule the issue you're causing is with the community so if you're causing harm to the community our goal is to restore said harm to the community because we want you to feel involved in it and so we kind of work from there
0: we did a a whole episode with uh, an old friend of ours uh, jesus who's a a very talented person because he was and is an acro dunker do you know what acro dunking is
1: I I think I've seen him at, like, some Warriors basketball games. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) At those very Warrior baseball
0: games, he was one of the people who would, like, get in costume and go off the trampoline or whatever he was on. I want to say America's Got Talent. They traveled to China. But he is also, like, a conflict negotiator who specializes in restorative justice at a high school in Oakland. So we had a whole show talking about restorative justice, and I made a lot of the same kind of comments where I was like, hmm, a little late for me, you know, as (laughs) a— One of my, one of my brother's favorite lines from the Simpsons is a little late for Lenny, uh, a very, a very obscure reference, but if you get it, you get it. Uh, But that's fantastic. And I I also did not know, and this, I got to ask about this. You are the Dean at the high school you attended as a student. Yeah. Is that correct?
1: That's that's correct. I graduated from that high school in 2009 uh, and I am now currently uh, their Dean. Uh, uh, And that's, Been a full circle experience seeing my face in like some photos and seeing my name on some like high school things in the hallway. And then I also feel like it's a great, uh, it's, it's honestly, I have skin in the game. And I think that's what's important with this role is that I know for a lot of teachers that come from TFA and the TFA track definitely has the connotation of white folks from the East Coast and that typically students they they kind of have a hard time connecting with them but my whole clan of them is i live like 5 i grew up 5 minutes from this school that we go to right now. My mom is still there five minutes away. She comes by every lunch to see me and say, hey, um, I know the community. Uh, I know uh, folks who are working in the mayor's office. I know a couple of the police chiefs. I know a couple of folks in the fire department. Like, my connection is to the community. So at the end of the day, if you're upset with who I am, just know that I'm from here. I live here. And for a lot of our teachers, they have a hard time, you know, reaching students because they're like, yo, you're, you're not even from here. You don't know the culture. But at the end of the day, I am from here. The culture is rooted in my veins, and I got and to I yeah. go through it. They're lucky to have
0: you. Uh, have it's kids. funny to hear you say, I have heard a lot of educators say different things about Teach for America. That's a whole separate conversation, but it's very funny to hear you say, like, oh, you know, where you are, Teach for America tends to be like white people from the East Coast, right? Because mm. in New York City, uh, the the stereotype or the generalization is like, oh, Teach for America is all uh, white people from the Midwest, you know? <laughs> so I guess, mm. <laughs> it's like, pick and pull and borrow and switch um but i it's a very important point you're making and i i think now about the people that i connected most with in high school and they were people like that people who were from where i was from and that makes a big difference that's very cool man good to hear it instead of saying you know like there are so many things that my you know rebellious like kind of like tapping into my teenage self wants to say which is like you know uh You know, now you're the man. You know, (laughs) but instead, (laughs) instead, you've redefined what the man could be. In fact, the person who's in a, a yeah, the person who's in a position of authority can be the person who connects and nurtures and supports. That's wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for that background uh, as an educator. I think it will help to inform our conversation, which unfortunately is not just a back to school conversation. Usually, you know, we do a back to school show every year. Right. That's just part mm-hmm. of what we do. And there are, there's always something to talk about in education, of course. Uh, but these past couple of years, we had one very specific thing to talk about, which is mm-hmm. uh, what does it mean to go back to school in the age of covid? I saw a video today on TikTok where a guy was making a joke about, man, we were so close to precedented times, you know, like which I, I mm-hmm. love. That's such a good way to put it because we we keep saying unprecedented, unprecedented. Everybody just wants to get back to normal. Right. So it's like, mm-hmm. where are the precedented times? Mm-hmm. Uh it felt like we were there and then we're absolutely not there. Uh it's Frustrating in a lot of ways. It's frustrating for everybody. Everyone in the world is talking about this right now, so I, I don't have to say very much about uh, how frustrating the setback feels for people who are ready to, you know, take the next step. You know, we're not using the word normal anymore, but, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the next step was, we were ready to take it. Uh, and it looks like we're going to have to hold that thought for a while. So I'd like to start off by asking, what is the difference uh, between going back to school and COVID right now? Uh, and going back to school during COVID a year ago, if there even is one.
1: Yeah, I think the major difference from what's going on currently to the past, I would have to say, I think, is is just the tone of safety. Um, Last year, we were like the whole... State of California, great. We are going to pre- focus on protecting our students and their families, and we're just not going to offer in-person schooling right now. Um, like, the numbers are too high. We're really, we're really concerned about their safety. So we're going to provide um, services and funding for schools to move to a social distance remote learning platform. So Zoom classes, um, Zoom was giving teachers Free access to their basic platform for education. Um, Pear Deck was giving discounted access to use Pear Deck for fur involvement, uh, and so there was that focus of like, great, we're focusing on safety, we're focusing on supporting schools, and we're gonna, you know, do our best to get them through the situation that's that's going on currently. And we know that, you know, the issue of doing remote learning during that time is that if you're a parent, uh, you were asking or requesting. A lot more hours to work from home in order to watch and facilitate these lessons with your student being there as opposed to leaving them um, at home by themselves. And so we saw there a lot of families were staying at home or they had a a family friend stay home to watch them. And so we know that that directly impacted, you know, the economy. Folks weren't going out and doing things. Folks were being very much remote. Um, Businesses were, you know, cutting back on in-person hours and people were having a much more flexible uh, time to do their work. We know that as time went on, though, um, the the supportive nature of things changed. Teachers went from being heroes and being thankless heroes to being, hey, like, why can't we open right now? Like, the numbers are getting lower. Like, why don't you all get vaccinated? You can take our kids. Why do we have to keep waiting? I know, for instance, in Berkeley, we had these... um, individuals called guerrilla moms that were showing up to like Berkeley PTA meetings and uh, school board meetings and just fully canvassing for we need schools open now. It went from being your heroes to like you're being cowards, open the schools, take our kids. It's been almost a full year. They need to be in school. This is ridiculous. And again, like I feel like in some sense, um, Distance learning is not easy and it's also hasn't been super impactful um, because again, we were new at this. So a lot of things that we were presenting uh, or even had access to we hadn't tested. Typically, in education, if you're trying a new system, there are tests. A school in Oregon did something. and There's a whole like research paper done by it, and then you apply it to your school. But we we're just every school was just doing what the best they could do with the services they were they, they had access to. So it was very much. Schools were kind of having a mix, a mix match, hodgepodge results of like math and science scores were low. English may be high, uh, but it, it just really wasn't anything that we could write home about. It really wasn't anything that you could write home about of like, great, we did an amazing job at this. Like students were engaged, but, you know, in education, everything is based off of scores. So our scores were either plateauing or didn't. Do great. Um, and so, you know, I definitely understand that there was a, 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 need and a desire for there to be more impactful learning. And unfortunately, the only other impactful learning that we we're aware of is in person. So a lot of families were pushing for let's get back in schools no matter what. And the issue became great. Like for our school and for many schools, when, when we got to around, you know, spring break, what does, the future look like? Are we going to be requesting uh, a COVID vaccine? The same way that we request students get, you know, vaccinations for like the measles or the mumps, you know, and there really wasn't any clarity on that. And then, we, of course, we come back from spring break and we find out from Gavin Newsom that, hey, I'm providing special funding to schools that are opening up small in-classroom learnings for specific students uh, as a way to get students back in class. And so that's when we start seeing smaller schools, we started seeing schools open up for, our, for my school. In particular, we opened up to just seniors. We picked a class, we picked that class, and we opened up the doors for them. We got special funding, teachers who were in-person, got a special stipend from the government because they were doing that. And there was just a lot. Uh, and we could tell that the, what was happening was there was going to be a transition between uh, the support we were getting. The support we were getting now was more focused on in-person. And then, of course, the messaging we got towards the end of the year is like, listen, this is a really impactful year in terms of the economy. If we're doing school next year, it's going to be a 100% in-person. So coming into this year with that mindset, we were all looking for very clear guidelines and protocols regarding. COVID safety. Um, In the spring of last year, the COVID safety guidelines were very clear. Every student had to be screened before they came on campus. Students were then given a thermometer test. Um, Students then were, you know, put on a special list of who was on campus. And the backtracing was very clear because each classroom had a small amount of students present within them. And in those classrooms, all the desks were moved wider apart to accommodate for social distancing. Um, Coming into this year, none of that could happen because we're doing 100% in person and for the one thing, you can't really do six feet distance in a classroom because you have eighteen to twenty students, and unless your classroom is a, the size of a conference room or yeah. or, the, or, or sorry or, the, or a the, gym the, or a gym, yeah. you can't yeah. do that. And so yeah. that's been taken off the table. With the table now, also is like getting uh, is this whole. Um, Uh, screening process. Now the screening process has changed from students and families filling out the form to telling families you need, it is your responsibility to verbally check your student before you send them to school. And that's pretty much, you know, we're hoping that you can be honest with us and tell us your student doesn't have it. But that's putting a lot. Like we're writing a lot on hope for 600 students and classrooms where they may be at the most two to three feet apart and hoping that a student doesn't come on campus and spread COVID. But what I also think is the biggest issue is that for my school and most other schools, they are fully expecting moments and times where there is going to be exposure and classes may have to you know, be closed and even your school may close down. But there is not an expectation to do remote learning. Um, it's been currently communicated to most schools that there is no funding right now for, for any kind of remote learning, unless it is for, uh, any students that might have a medical issue or students that, uh, have, um, a, a written, uh, necessity that goes with like, uh, a mental, uh, illness or a, you know, neurodivergency that you can't have, uh, you know, them in the classroom. But otherwise, right. there's no funding for Remote learning. So even if you are as a parent, do not want to send your kid back to school, your only other option is either to send them to school or to send them to a type of homeschool because there is no funding currently for uh, any kind of remote learning, at least for so the Contra Costa where I work at.
0: The first uh, day of school is coming up, right? What is it? Yeah, a couple our first weeks of away? be
1: August seventeenth?
0: Yeah, that's uh, exactly two weeks from today, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I did the math right. Uh, so, does that mean as of August 17th, boom, full capacity, no remote learning option, every student who's going to be going to school will be going to school in person as far as your school That's is That's correct. Right? Yeah.
1: We send it um, to all, all families. They know we, uh, our school sent out emails and letters saying we are 100% in-person, in-words, so that families know there's no option of remote learning for this year. Yeah. Uh, I
0: have a lot of questions about that, but I want to rewind for one second and ask you about uh, Gorilla Moms. Maybe not the specific (laughs) people in Berkeley, but I'm curious about the motivation for parents who are insistent, have been insistent about opening. Do you have the sense that those parents are insistent about reopening because they feel that their children are getting inadequate education remotely uh, or do? That they are overwhelmed by having to provide childcare for their children every day, or they're not able to go to work, or is it kind of a mix of the two? What is the impetus? What's the motivation for for the parents who are really pushing for the reopen? From from yeah. your perspective,
1: yeah, it's a good question. I think I think it's a mixed bag. I think for the Berkeley moms that are presented um, at these, like Berkeley as a school district is very well off, so I think uh, the overall tone from that side of things like, great, these are moms that are presenting, the great. like, you know, remote learning is not impactful. My my kid is, you know, not learning as much because they're at home. And also this is impacting, you know, me as a parent, because now my kid has to be at home. uh, And that's like, you know, not a burden, but it's a difficulty that I have to deal with. And I think for my side over on Richmond's side, you have to do with the fact that families are like, hey, listen, I work and I can't be home to watch my kid do work and the issue I'm having is if my kid's not doing work then I have to go from my job and tell them to do work but then it's like what's the point if like he's doing remote work so I think there's just two schools of, of thought of like cool like either like I would like to go to work and you know I'm tired of watching my kid and then I don't work from home or it's like hey listen I have to work and I cannot be in home with my kid, and I cannot have these phone calls of like, hey, your kid's not here, and I don't, like, this is a lot for me to deal with, and it's just me. And so I think we're doing with a lot of families who just have the issue of, like, I don't have enough hands or enough support to actively get my kid engaged in any kind of school right now. And the one thing that we know that schools provide is schools are have basically become a drop-off point of, like, great, this child is your responsibility. I have to go now. And... With, 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 with COVID, it was like, I have to work, but this kid is also now my responsibility and I just can't leave them. And also like now I'm getting phone calls because they're at the house not doing anything. And it became this very contentious point of like, well, what do you want me to do? I have to work from eight to six and I can't be with this kid. So if you can't get him to work from home, I can't get him to work from home either. And so it became yeah. a thing of like school needs to open up because I'm tired of getting these phone calls and my kid isn't learning. And only for him to learn is to have someone stand over him and make him do it like he's, like he's in the classroom. So that I think became the main thing for all of our families and places like um, Richmond and Title I urban areas.
0: Yeah. I'm sure it's a combination of factors. I'm just curious mm-hmm. um, what was driving it because I think later on we'll have a, another similar conversation about what's driving uh from a government perspective uh mm-hmm. to reopen uh but i do before we get to that i do want to ask what You guys feel about this, you know, like uh, as an educator, as an administrator, you know, you get the news that we're going back to full capacity day one. Is there a consensus? Are you all like, hey, finally, great, we can do this. Or is everybody like this is going to be a disaster or is it kind of a mixed bag of voices? What's what's the thinking in the teacher's lounge?
1: Yeah, I I think. As a whole, we all, as educators, can agree that remote learning wasn't the best, and I think it wasn't the best because there wasn't no uniformity to it. There was no protocol, there was no scope and sequence, uh, and as educators, we are typical like we are used to having uh, to present information to students that has been seen, that has been validated, that has sources to uh, let us know what the outcomes are. And instead, we're pretty much just creating things up out of thin air and trying to make them stick and accommodate them on the fly. So I think with remote learning being over, that's we were excited for that, but, you know, now comes the next biggest beast, which is the fact we're bringing in students who, you know, either haven't been in school in the past, you know, two years, um, as well as students who, for those past two years, haven't had any learning growth, um, and that now are in need of, you know, serious remediation, you um, because, you know, there are things we had to hit. There are, there are marks we had to hit for state testing in order to get funding. And there are uh, tests they had to meet and make in order to graduate. And now we're going to be in person. And there's going to be a lot of discrepancy between what anyone knows. And also on top of that, there is the bigger issue of the social, emotional vulnerability of all these kids. Um, we know that with um, students being remote the benefit was that they didn't have to be as seen they didn't have to be looked at they didn't have to have their house looked at they could just have their cameras blacked out and that was their whole persona we know that there are students that thrived in that role of like great i can just be a blank face a blank canvas and turn in all my work and get it done early and no one has to bother me because i turned it in already That was a benefit. And now we're returning to the you know very tried and true method of in-person learning. And we're now gonna have kids who aren't used to speaking. In front of others who don't feel comfortable around others, who yeah. maybe in a crowd of people in the hallway might have anxiety. Um, we know that anxiety levels have heightened during the pandemic. We know we added on a lot. I know that for our school particularly, we brought on two more counselors because we know that anxiety is going to be a big thing to deal with. We know students are going to have anxiety attacks. Students are going to have uh, anxiety episodes where like they just don't want to be in that space anymore. We the students are going to have issues with, you know, how they look. You know, a lot of students and a lot of adults, you know, gain some weight over the pandemic, and they probably look very different than how they used to look. And now that they're going to be in person, it's a moment of like, you get to see what I really look like, and I don't like how I look, and I don't, how I, and I don't like how you look at me. And that's the issue we're going to have to deal with. So there, there's just a lot of issues where we're like, really trying to tackle. And I think what's been very difficult for us on the admin side of things is figuring out um, how to scaffold all those supports in a way that feels, you know, validating and a way that feels impactful because we don't want it to be like a very short period of like us supporting students and then we go right into education because, you know, that it might not be long enough. But we also know that because we operate in a school district, there are these expectations of like, as a school, you need to hit these marks and, you need to, and here are the tests for the year. And it's disappointing that as we're coming back into in-person learning, um, these tests still exist and they're still required and are still necessary. And we still have to present them to our students in a way uh, that we can't really change. It's like, great, like, I want to give you more time to feel comfortable in the space, but here's your math test, that's state sanctioned that you have to take right now.
0: Yeah, It's good to hear from you that there is a lot of complexity here, right? There's not like a silver bullet. It's not like, Oh, obviously what we should do is X, but everybody, you know, but people aren't agreeing to that because I, um, you know, my mom used to say about a lot of things, anybody who, anybody who thinks the solution is simple, doesn't understand the problem. Uh, she's a very wise woman. Uh, and I see that very often, and that's why we have such rich discussions on this show, because it's not. Uh, you know, it's not MSNBC where it's like, hey, obviously we need to hurry up and do this, you know, and and then we blame like use partisan language and blame. It's like, nah, it's just so complicated uh, that there are truths on both sides. There are good things about reopening in terms of, you know, the quality of education that young people are going to get. There are a lot of considerations about reopening in terms of people's safety. Uh, There is no silver bullet. There's no obvious solution. Um, Mm -hmm. But I am I am interested in, and like I said, I do want to talk about what the motivation is from the perspective of, you know, people in government who make decisions about when schools will reopen, because I got the impression, you know, uh, a year ago or longer that this huge push to reopen schools, uh, and you, you mentioned this on on Marlon's Corner, uh, had a lot more to do with uh, the economy than it did with the quality of children's education or with Mm -hmm. anybody's safety. Right. I think that was pretty transparent. I'm not it's not like I have some kind of deep insight. It was it was pretty obvious that's what was going on. Then it reminded me of uh something a college professor said many, many, many years ago when I was a freshman at San Francisco State, uh, and we were talking about compulsory education. And, you know, this was like a uh, political science class, you know, so we're all getting out there, you know, we're all 18 years old and ready to burn it down, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and this professor said, uh, you know, the, the origin of compulsory education in this country is just, um, it's a place to put uh, children so that their parents can work, you know? Mm-hmm. And Because we, part of this class was, you know, it was about criminal justice and juvenile justice, right? And why we've always thought about, teenagers as like a menace you know and this professor was like well you know here's the problem uh you know the reality is kids don't contribute to the economy right because they can't work because we got laws against it so uh in the eyes of a lot of people who are you know diehard capitalists are like it's really just a children are just a problem that need a solution and that solution (laughs) is compulsory education uh so that they can have they can be away, so that their parents i think the language my professor used was you know so the, it's a place to put kids while their parents, you know, push brooms and pour coffee or something like that. <laughs> very, mm-hmm. very dark, you know. Um, but that wasn't a complete dismissal of education. Obviously, there's a lot of value there, but uh, he was pointing it out as... Um, An additional consideration when we're talking, when having these big national debates about education and what is it for and what should we do while kids are there. It seems like there are a lot of people in positions of power who don't really care that much about uh, what kids are learning or if they're learning, uh, just that it's a place to put people and... I mean, I guess we do have comments. Some people really care about, like, no, you can't teach about uh, racial justice in school, or you can't, you know, like, you can't teach, be like, no, you know, you can't teach about dinosaurs because that contradicts the Bible or whatever. But for the most mm-hmm. part, um, that's not a big part of the conversation. But you mentioned on Marlin's Corner that this is. Uh, It seems to be this discussion is like a collision between what's best for the economy, what's best for capitalism and then what's best for people's safety. Is that am I kind of like am I phrasing that properly? Talk a little bit about that and how it's kind of playing out, um, at least at your school.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, this pandemic, I think, really. I mean, as educators, we absolutely know that wherever school you are at, that school is a community center. Like, it doesn't have to have the name community center, but that school is a place where families go for support if they're dealing with homelessness, support if they're hungry, support if they need money, support if they need... Um, additional educational or supportive opportunities. And I think these are all things that we just knew about and operated a school on a day-to-day basis. With the pandemic, we saw that um, these schools were absolutely necessary and integral to a functioning um, society. Schools went from housing students to providing food to the community. My school, for instance, um, we got funding because we get lunch all the time, we got funding to then just turn our food budget into meal prepping. So every Monday we gave out a box of food and it was labeled Monday to Friday meals. And so we would have families in the community line up around the corner and just do a drive through and pick up their food because either they just couldn't find work or their work closed because of COVID or they didn't make enough money to feed their families. And so we saw that this is what... at this is what schools have become. They become a one-stop shop for community to support. And when you take away the education, um, they still serve a purpose regardless of whether or not they have students in them or not. And I think with um with the economy being what it was, but with, with businesses closing, businesses being shut down, no one's shopping, no one buying anything, there was this real big push of we got to get folks back in the building. We got to get offices back open. And in order for them to do that, kids have to go to school. Like you can't expect a parent or two parents to leave and go to work when they have kids at home. And so that was the difficult part. And like I think what's been great and what's been, I think, a consequence to the pandemic is that a lot of jobs are offering two to three days a week working from home remotely, um, that's now become the new catch-all for if you're trying to find a new job, they will tie on, hey, we also work remotely from home. That's now the new catch-all because people have expected and gotten used to being, oh, I can do this from home. I don't need to go to work for that. And, And again, you also want to combat that of like, I don't want folks to get used to working from home. I want them to come to my place of work and do the work here. And in order for them to do that, Kids have to go to school. And if that means that, you know, they get exposed to COVID, so be it. We know that in L.A. County, the the Delta variant is really wilding out right now. And they're back in person. We know that schools in Contra Costa, our COVID numbers are coming up. This summer, we knew that the COVID was going to hop up. We knew that people were getting vaccinated, and the news of the 50 or 65% vaccination was going to have folks like, great, I can go out and have fun. And we knew that coming back, it was going to be a hotbed, and sure enough, it is. And now we're getting verbiage like, great, no remote. They're in person. And we know that they truly have decided to kind of weigh the options. And the options they're weighing are like, What's the what's the what's the death rate for 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 folks who are in this age range? It's not that high. They can get really sick, but it's not that high. So we're not going to fully be like, great, we can't do it. We're going to still have it open. What they're not considering, of course, is if they have an an elder at home, if they have someone that has a medical history at home. They're not factoring that in. What they're factoring in is like, are these kids going to be capable of being in a building and learning and at least taking the burden of child care off of the family so they can go back to work. And that's what we're doing right now. As we're saying, we're willing to sacrifice this in order to bounce back the economy after a year slump.
0: Yeah. Well, do, uh, I mean, at, at least among teachers and and administrators and educators, is there a concern or do you have a concern about your own safety? I mean, obviously, the child's, uh, you know, student safety is really important, but I know, you know, my office is in the process of going back uh mm-hmm. and a lot of people are saying, ah, you know, I don't feel safe doing this" and there's a big conversation about um, you know, it's, it's a union job, right? So management can't hand anything down and there are a lot of conversations about what's safest and um are you having similar conversations? Obviously, it sounds like if the kids are coming back, you have to go back, but mm-hmm. uh what is the feeling among, you know, your you and your your peers, coworkers? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think what's made it harder for, um, educators is the fact that, you know, the, the government has said schools are 100% in person. It'd be one thing if there was like some language of you have a choice to do it, because when we were given that verbiage of like, you can open your school however you want it, we could send out a survey to, 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 you know, staffing, like, do you feel comfortable being on campus or not? And we could give them that choice. But because the verbiage we're receiving is 100% in person, the expectation is we are all back 100% in person. You wear a mask, you do that, you, you deal with it as so. And I feel like if you were a, a faculty member that was maybe a little bit concerned about returning in person, um, your superintendent or your principal is probably going to just repeat to you, The government has said we're back 100% in person, and that's what we have to do. And if you aren't someone that wants to do that, just know that that's the expectation for everyone. It's not my choice. The choice given to us as a school, because we can no longer operate in remote settings. So if you are choosing to not return in person, that means that you are either resigning or, or quitting. But basically, it's like, it's no longer a school's choice to be like, how do you feel about this? It's like, great. We have been told we can't do remote, meaning no one can do remote. So if you're not coming into work, that means you are choosing to resign from your position at this point in time.
0: Um, Yeah, Uh, that's a tough spot to be in, obviously. Uh, And I know there are other workers who are in a similar situation, but I feel like overall, a lot of the conversations when people talk about, you know, like maybe white collar jobs, people are saying, Mm -hmm there's a conversation about revisiting how, what the workplace is, you know, yeah. some people want to come back and be in person. Some people don't, maybe a hybrid model makes more sense, but there are many, many, many other workers who don't have that option. Teachers are one of them. Uh, and then of course, all the essential workers, which we've discussed before it is, uh, you know, like, like anything like this happens, it, it highlights uh, class disparities and it, it shows who, uh, who's considered a priority and who is worth, uh, protecting. And, uh, I, I you know, it's very illuminating, a, a crisis yeah. illuminates, you know, and I, I heard you make a comment. <laughs> this is, I know I've been disparaging schools. I love school. School is great. I was just a kid who got into a lot of trouble. So I, I made it part of my personality to, I'm like, I'm still Bart Simpson. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> even though, even though it's not logical to be that way, but, um, you know, I I heard you talk about, it's like, oh, have you ever been in a high school hallway you know that there's no not space. You know it's like the definition oh, really? of, of a high school hallway is just everybody just mashed up against each other, right? You can't social distance, and it reminded me um, in my work. You know, I have a lot of clients who are incarcerated, right? So mm-hmm. it's another space that feels like oh, it, it's not possible to have social distancing in this space because those are institutional settings, right? That happens a mm-hmm. lot in hospitals. That's where the spreads happen. And then I was like, wait a minute. Schools just like jail, man. And then I was like, No, it's not. No, it's not. Let me back off from that. But in terms of an institution, any place where you're going to get that many people together indoors um, to have a, a shared space, it, it raises a lot of questions. You know, I mean, I've been to a lot of you know baseball games this summer. Right? Mm-hmm. It was really weird to sit with forty thousand people. You know, but we were outdoors. You know, and based on what we know from CDC guidelines and everything else, that's not, it's not the safest thing, but it's a lot safer than being indoors. And, uh, and that's where we've learned. That's where we've been taught to learn is, is in a classroom. Um, but I do want to ask you before we get out of here, as, as a lot of. Our listeners know I retired my crystal ball a long time ago. I'm done trying to predict the future. I used to say, I know, you know what I mean? I I'd always mm-hmm. say, oh, this person's gonna run, this person's gonna be the next president, or here's how this I'm done. Cause I was wrong about too many things. Just like everybody else was. The last five <laughs> years was the last five years was very rough on people who were trying to tell you what was gonna happen next. Sure. Uh, but so even if I don't do it, I could put you in this position. What do you expect for this school year? You know, what are your hopes and kind of what are your fears and, and with the information you have now, how do you kind of expect this school year to unfold?
1: Yeah, with well, the information I have now, um, I fully expect um, schools are going to have exposures. Um, they're going to have students at home. They're going to have issues of families getting COVID. They're going to have issues of, I mean, all this is going to be, you know, publicized and it's going to be in the media. There's going to be a lot of cron 4 news or action moments of like this school had like 87 exposure. It's going to be a common thing. Uh, and we're not going to get to a point where they're going to close down schools just yet. Um, I think it's going to have to be a full on moment where the exposure rates are just ridiculous. And then educators are told we're going back to remote learning. Um, and it might even happen after winter break, depending on because Again, the fall is when uh, it's flu season in the fall. The fall really? is flu season, and we're going to be in a building with 600-plus kids. Yeah. It's flu season. It's also still the pandemic. It's going to be rampant. It's going to spread, and it's going to be a quite high exposure rating. And I do think that after winter break, we might see some schools get the go-ahead to go hybrid. We might even see them say the go-ahead to go um Remote, but I think we're gonna see a lot more um, ratings. My hope is that um, the part of the Department of Ed listens to teachers, um, that they listen to the needs that we have right now, which is that we absolutely should have opened in a hybrid model um, to start to at least uh, acclimate students to being in school to at least acclimate them with the needs of safety and to just train families on what it means to successfully and safely screen their families, what we're looking for, what we're not looking for. Um, and my wish is that, you know, all these kids are safe, uh, but I do think that we're just going to be in for a really rough ride in ed with the returning to in-person learning um, with Again, not very strict guidelines. And I do think that this is going to be a year to write about where, you know, Ed definitely uh, was trumped by capitalism. Like your child education was not as important as making money for businesses was.
0: Yeah. Oh, what a dark note to end on. But (laughs) accurate. You came here for the truth. You got the truth. Yes. Uh, This was very illuminating for me, and, and I'm sure for our listeners. I can't thank you enough for being here, Marlon. This was fantastic. As you know, you're welcome on this show anytime, uh, for any reason. But I specifically want to invite you back as the school year kind of progresses and we get a better sense of how things are shaking out. Just to do kind of a check in, and maybe that would be a winter break check in. Um, but yes, thanks for being here. It was fantastic. I also want to thank Eming, of course. I think. Uh, if she had the opportunity, she might have rung her bell uh, <laughs> because we had a couple tangents. There was I, I think oh, I made some do. Simpsons references, you know, but they were all relevant. Um, but yes, I want to thank uh, our producer, E-Ming, as always. And thanks to our listeners, of course. Until next time, Quest On, everybody.
1: This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.